All right, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel and find chapter 17. 1 Samuel and chapter 17. And thank you to my lovely assistant for reading the paraphrase of God's Word for us tonight. Uh, Robin, if you wouldn't mind, could you grab me a cup of water, please? Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, 1 Samuel 17 is where we're going to be tonight, and we're continuing in the Heroes, the Superheroes of Faith series. And tonight, uh, David and Goliath uh, falls to the smallest guy on the church staff. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, God has a has a sense of humor. Uh, but this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture where the little shepherd boy takes on this uh, champion warrior uh, from, from Gath. I heard Louis Giglio uh, do this uh, sermon, uh, did a, a masterful job, and every time he said that, he was just like, who wants to be from Gath, you know? Uh, it's just a terrible sound in town. Um, but <clears throat> tonight as we dig into God's Word, uh, I'm not going to preach out of the Jesus Storybook Bible, although it's uh, a good paraphrase. We're going to move chunk by chunk uh, through this story. I'm not going to hit every single verse, so you'll have to kind of track with me. Uh, and we're going to look at kind of some chunks of thought uh, in God's Word together tonight. Before we dig in, there are some very important points we need to make, one of which is thank you to Robin. Appreciate that. Um, but one of which is that when we come to a story like this that you've heard uh, since the flannel graph, all right, I'm not calling anybody out here. Uh, I, I saw, you know, we did flannel graphs when I was a kid. But uh, since the flannel graph time or uh, when you, you heard this in VBS, you know, and you're eating your juice and crackers and stuff, and they're telling you about this boy David and this big giant and everything. Um, sometimes when we come to Scripture and a passage is very familiar to us, we come with a, a spirit of pride. We come with the spirit of pride. And so what we need to do tonight is, if that's where you're at, if you're, if you're thinking, well, man, gosh, you know, I, 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 just, I guess I'll just head on home because I know this thing inside and out. I've heard it since I was three, right? Then we need to check our hearts. We need to come with a spirit of inquiry where we're asking the questions, okay, God, what do you want to teach me tonight? What do you need to remind me of that maybe you said yesterday and I'm hard-headed and I've forgotten? Um, so God, what do you want to show me? What can I learn? So that's number one. But second, we need to do this. We need to be careful how we read these Old Testament accounts of real life events. Uh, it's no doubt that you've probably all heard sermons or been a part of some Bible study where somebody looked at you and said, okay, you can be David. And if you get your five smooth stones and they're the right thing and you take them out with you and you're like David and you have courage, you can take down your giants, right? And they kind of enforce this moralism on you that if you do the right things and you act the right ways and say the right words, it's some kind of magic formula and we can just make our giants go away, you know. Uh, well, that's not how it works. That's bad exegesis. That's reading things into the scripture that simply are not in the Bible. Uh, besides, uh, Alistair Begg says this in, uh, in his treatment on the text, which one would you know to use? If you've got five of them, Bible study, prayer, reading, joining a multiply group, volunteering in champs. You know, if the first one works, what do you do with the other four, right? I mean, I guess they're just leftover and they're not important. Um, and so it breaks down. Third, we need to understand, we need to be clear with ourselves who we are up front uh, when we look at this text. If we're going to start making connections about, okay, I see myself more like um, David and my mother-in-law, she's like Goliath, and um, my mother-in-law is not here tonight, so I might can get away with that one. Uh, just a joke. But if we start making connections, we can get on some really slippery ground uh, headed away from the truth of God's Word if we do it wrongly. So we need to know who we are. So here's who you are, and I'm one of you, okay? We're the armies of Israel in this passage. We need to understand that from the start. 
Okay? There's an enemy taunting us in whatever specific way he's taunting and insulting you and assaulting your God. There's an enemy taunting you probably today and maybe right now. And because of our inability to vanquish this enemy on our own, we're cowering in fear. All right? And if you could look into my heart and I could look into your heart tonight, we would both look at each other and say, that's, that's the truth. That's the truth. When this thing comes back after me and, 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 I, and I listen to these lies, I back up into the corner and I hide in the shadows and I'm paralyzed with fear because I, I just, I don't know how to beat this thing. So we need to know who we are. So my goal in our time together is this tonight, to, for us to learn to see our struggles through God's eyes, to learn to see the battle you're facing, the sin struggle that keeps plaguing you the way that God sees it and not the way that you see it from down here on the ground level. We need to remember that every battle in life is ultimately about who? It's about God. Every battle Every addiction, every struggle, every gossip rumor mill, everything we struggle with is ultimately a theological problem. It has to be. It all has to go back to God if he created it all. That means somewhere it's gotten out of order and we need to get things back in order. Every situation we face, good or bad, can be used in our lives to glorify God if we'll learn to see it through God's eyes. Now, the reason David sees this thing through God's eyes when nobody else did is this. David knew there is no enemy, no authority, and no power that can stand in the presence of our almighty God. John 18, what happens? Jesus says two words. I am. Ego me. He claims to be God. And a whole company of soldiers is, boom, just flat on their backs. They can't even stand when he says his name. Now, if I say my name, you guys are going to laugh, right? Like, you're not going to fall out of your chairs. Nothing's going to happen, right? When Jesus says his name, people can't even stand in his presence. See, the scripture teaches us Jesus has already stepped on the neck of every enemy you will ever face because he stepped on the neck and the head of the ultimate enemy, Satan, at his cross. And guess what? The enemy knows it. But the best he can do is hope to grab a hold of you and just pull you down with him as he goes down himself. And so the battle, when we do battle with our enemy in the flesh, we can know this. We can live in this, okay? We have to remember this truth, that greater is he who is in you, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, if we know Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 4. So let's dig into 1 Samuel, and we're going to move through tonight, and I'll stop at different points, and we'll take a look at the view, see what God has for us. A little background quickly uh, on the Philistines. Let's talk about them for just a second. Um, They were the arch enemy of God's people. Their conflict goes way back, way before the time of David. Now, the the Philistines were a pretty rough crowd. They were kind of the guys from the opposite side of the tracks. But see, they had figured some things out. They knew this whole iron, metal, weaponry thing pretty well. uh, And they conquered some trade routes. And so they were a pretty substantial people in that time. In fact, chapter 14 tells us there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul's life. And so every time Israel would get a victory over them, what would happen? They would just come back and they would just nag at the Israelites and they would dig at them and just keep coming back for more. And I was writing through this stuff and thinking and everything and just asking God to show me some stuff. And it was like God said to me, you know, that's how sin is in your life, isn't it? That's how sin is in our lives. God gives us the victory over something 
And uh, it comes back again, and it, and it nags at you, and it calls your name, and it taunts you, and it threatens you, and it insults you, and it keeps coming back after you, it seems like day after day after day. And it drives us to levels of fear and despair that we never thought we'd be at because it just keeps coming back. Verse 1, the Philistines were trespassing on Israel's land. When we look at the scripture, it says in 1 Samuel 17, 1, the Philistines had gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. All right, so they're encamped on a, on a piece of land that belongs to God's people. All right, the no trespassing signs around the perimeter of the property, they just took them down. They didn't care. Like they were showing them boldly, we're stepping onto your property. What are you going to do about it? We're setting up our camp in your backyard. What now? We have to remember, if you look at 1 Samuel 15 and 16, the chapters, God rejected Saul as king in those chapters. He rejected Saul as king, and he, he basically uh, took his, his uh, Holy Spirit away from leading him, all right, and from empowering him, and he placed it on David. And Saul knew this. Saul understood this full well. He knew uh, that this had happened, and so his courage was failing him. And so he could not lead his people as he, uh, as he wanted to. Go to verse 3. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them, but the valley of Elah. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you yet, uh, unless you already know this, but we're going to get into that in a second. Verse 6, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before them. All right, this was a Hebrew way of saying this dude was huge. He was massive. I mean, he was enormous. The, the scripture describes him as nine feet, nine inches tall. So, so to give you some uh, picture of this height, if you look at that orange basketball rim over there, the orange rim is nine, nine or nine, ten. It's not perfect ten feet. All right. So when Goliath stood under there, his head would be brushing the little knot where you put the net into the bottom of the rim. The guy was massive. Everything about him was designed uh, to intimidate his enemies. That was his weapon of warfare. Because if you look at the scripture, does he ever lift a finger to touch anybody? Not one time. All he does is yell at them and curse them and call them names, all right? So he is intimidating them into the point of just being completely paralyzed. Let's look at his gear for just a second, verses 3 through 7. He had a helmet of bronze and an armored coat over his chest. Now this coat itself, just the coat alone, weighed 125 pounds. All right, so he's carrying most of me on his back. All right, that's a man. That's a man. He's fighting a battle with me on his piggyback. This is a big dude. He's got bronze leg coverings because everybody's half his height. So I'm swinging at his kneecaps, right? And he's slapping me on the head if I'm fighting him. So these leggings are pretty important. They're protecting his shins. He had a bronze javelin slung across his back. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. Well, I had no idea what that meant, so I looked it up. Two and a half inches thick and probably five feet long. I mean, almost as long as, as I am. And weighed 15 to 17 pounds. All right? That was just the shaft. The point of the spear itself was somewhere between 15 and 17 pounds. 
We're talking a 30-pound piece of uh, weaponry here, okay? So this guy's throwing this thing, all right? So just the mere sight of this spear is going to make you go, can you believe what that dude's got in his hand, all right? I couldn't pick this thing up probably, okay? Uh, Adrian and I cutting some wood a year or two ago, and, and I had this little maul, and it's like a little bitty tiny thing. It's like, you know, a my size maul. And Adrian comes over with this man's maul, you know, and this thing's 14 pounds, and I'm looking at it, and like all of my thoughts about how manly I am are going down the drain, right? And he's like, you want to turn? I'm like, nope. <laughs> but what do I do? I've got to, you know, like, you know, just see what I made of. I pick this thing up. I can barely hold it. It's 14 pounds. I pick it up, and with everything I got, I hoist it up in the air and go, all right, and the wood doesn't even move. I mean, it's pathetic. So picture an almost 10-foot guy who's picking up this spear like it's a little toothpick. The dude is huge. Some commentaries actually think that the whole point of the spear was just intimidate. It was so big that you looked at it, and you thought, oh, my goodness. He had a shield bearer in front of him, probably just for show. If you're covered in bronze, you don't need a shield. Besides, the guy's five and a half feet tall. He's my height. What's he going to block? Your kneecap? Okay? So he didn't need a shield bearer. Everything about Goliath was designed to intimidate. He's carrying 200 plus pounds of armor, all right? And Adrian and I did some figures, and we're trying to be conservative with this thing. But if he's got a V-shaped chest, if he's got a V-shaped chest and he's just a massive man, if you take a six-foot man's proportions and you elevate them to the point of nine foot nine inches, if you take his 200-pound uh, weight of armor and his size and everything, he's going to weigh somewhere around, what do we say, six or 700 pounds? Enormous. Six or 700 pounds plus his 200 pounds of armor. I'm 155 soaking wet. All right? And the Scripture Uh, seems to indicate, commentaries say that David probably was about my size. Like we picture David all big and tall and regal and everything. Like he's probably five and a half feet tall, okay? And here he is going against this giant. So here comes this Philistine champion and he comes out to taunt God's armies. Look at verse eight. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Remember this. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath comes out with a question. He says, why have you even come out for battle? If you're just going to stand here and you're not going to do anything about it, why even go through all the trouble of putting on your armor? This is a huge question with massive implications that he asks next. He says, I'm a Philistine. You're servants of who? Saul. You're servants of Saul. Nobody caught the catch in this verse. If these guys had understood who they really were, their identity as belonging to the army of the living God, they would have said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, I might be scared right now, but I'm a son of the Most High King. I'm a soldier in the army of the living God. But they missed it because they took their eyes off of God. And they had their eyes fixed on their giant right in front of them, intimidating them. He says, send me your champion, and if he kills me, we'll serve him. If I kill him, you'll serve us. So this is a UFC fight on steroids, all right? There's nobody going home and just nursing wounds. This is a fight to the death. 
One person's going to die or the other person's going to die. One nation's going to become slaves or the other nation is going to become slaves. And just like I told you guys, the problem for Israel is this. They took their eyes off of the place where they belong, and that's on God. Deuteronomy 20, I think you'll see it on the screen, says this. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Let not your heart be faint or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight against your enemies to give you what? Victory. See, Israel forgot the promises of God. It was right there in the law. It, it, was, it told Israel, when you go to battle, here's how you do it. And what happened, the giant gets right in their face, and he's scared them to death, and it's overwhelming their sense of judgment and remembering the times that they have worshipped the Lord and known his law. And what happens? They take their eyes off of the Lord. Compare this to Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat in his situation has an army marching against him, and what's his prayer? Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on who? On you. And Israel says, Lord, we don't know what to do, and our eyes are on our enemy. Our eyes are on our fear. Our eyes are on our own adequacy or maybe inadequacy and insufficiency. Verse 10. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Literally, he's saying, I'm heaping bucket loads of shame onto your army. And because you represent the living God, or he didn't even think he was living, because you represent your God, guess what? I'm heaping shame on him. This is a direct assault on God himself. So he says, you guys don't even have the guts to fight me. And now he's launching an all-out assault on God. What was the result? Verse 11, the armies of God cowered in shame and cowered in fear. Then verse 12, everything turns around. David introduces his unlikely hero quietly into the story. How did Jesus come into the story? Quietly. Little bitty city called Bethlehem, incidentally where David's from, on a night when everybody else was busy about their business and they couldn't even find a place to stay and God introduces his hero into the story in the most unlikely way. Tiny little kid David was, tiny little town, Tiny little job taking care of some sheep out in the desert and playing the harp for his king. See, David was doing jobs that just really didn't seem to have a whole lot of importance and significance to them. But David did them faithfully because God was preparing him for this moment. Verse 16, we'll skip on down just a little bit. Look at verse 16. We're kind of going over the family part. Uh, but verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. You know how long that is? That's almost six weeks. Six weeks. Imagine if I stood up here and preached for six weeks. You guys are going to be ready to go home after one week, and I'm telling you something good. Imagine if a nine-foot-nine man stands in front of you and shouts at you and curses you and calls you names and says your God ain't worth nothing, and he does it for almost six weeks. They must be thinking, is there nobody who's going to stand up to this guy? but God answers the challenge. You know, we ask ourselves this question when we read this text. Why? You know, the author says for 40 days. Why did God let this go on for 40 days? Why did God let this go on for 40 days? If this was his army and he's going to be the victor, why did he let it happen? And some of you guys this evening are asking some questions 
about some situations, some struggles, some fights, some battles that you're gutting it out through and you're saying, God, why are, are you letting this happen? What does scripture say? He says he's the God who never sleeps nor slumbers. He counts the hairs on our head. He ordains and divinely directs every single moment, even the difficult ones. That's not my words, that's scripture. I think he was letting Goliath get ripe, ripe for destruction. Think big, fat, red tomato, almost rotten. All right? How hard is that thing to bust? It's not hard. Now, I'm not talking about the bigger they are, the harder they fall. You know, I'm not talking about all that. I'm just talking about this. He was letting Goliath get all fat and swollen and bloated on his own pride and his own lies and his own arrogance so that when he sent a little shepherd boy out there who had never been in a man-to-man combat, the glory was going to be even greater in the victory and go to God. God was letting this thing get to the point where if anything was going to be done, he was going to have to do it. The Valley of Vision Prayer says it like this, in the deepest wells, your stars shine the brightest. In the deepest wells, in the darkest night, that's when you see the stars the most clearly. It's when we're too aware, when we're, we're all just overwhelmed by our own weakness and our own inadequacy to solve the problem in front of us, that guess what happens? God does his greatest work in us and he displays his power in a way that he could not if you took things into your own hands and said, God, I got this one, I can handle it. Verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So this would be like, uh, this would be like um, Jerry saying, all right, boys, uh, I want y'all to head up the mountain to Krispy Kreme. I want you to grab uh, as many boxes of donuts as you can fit in the car, and I want you to bring them down to us. This is what J.D. Greer calls a donut run here, okay? This was five gallons of grain. That's how much that is. Five gallons, 10 loaves of bread, all right, and then 10 cheeses. David has to run several miles just to get to this place. David was in pretty good shape. David was in pretty good shape. But this is important. It's more than just that. It's more than that. The job that David was doing was the job of a household servant. David was doing the job that belonged to somebody else, but it wasn't beneath him. He was faithful and obedient. When his dad said go, he picked it up. And what happened? Early morning. Some of you are like, whew, early morning. Right? Early morning, the alarm clock goes off, 4.30. Eddie, you were up at like 3.15 or 3.30 or something cooking this morning, all right? That's, that's commitment, man. That's commitment. David jumps up, first light of dawn, and he takes off. See, I think this is important. If you look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, it tells us this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. David, everywhere in his life, is representing to us an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. See, you're never more like Jesus, and I'm never more like Jesus than when I'm serving somebody. And we're never more like the the, the enemy, the devil, than when we are calling out for others to serve us. The writer includes this detail to point us to Christ. So David finds him a little uh, sheep babysitter and he uh, has them taken care of and he sets off for the battlefield. Verse 19, David gets to the battlefield. He gets to the battlefield right when they're shouting the war cry, all right? Uh, they're, they're, they're together, they're going war cry, war cry, war cry, right? And, and they're getting ready, they're pumped up for battle. How defeating was this scene? 
This has been going on for almost six weeks. And they're trying their very best to pump themselves up and just to get something going. I mean, what kind of war cry do you have when your enemy has taunted you for this long? What kind of war cry do you have when you look at your leader and his confidence has crumbled because the Spirit's not empowering him anymore and he's cowered back in fear? The confidence of the whole army was crashed to the ground. Verse 23, the scripture tells us the Philistine champion comes out and he cranks up the insults again, but this time David hears it. The insults hit his ears and like salt in an open wound, he's not gonna let his God's glory be defied. Verse 25, David asks a question. He says, so what's the reward? If I fight this guy and I kill him, what's gonna be the reward? And the soldiers look at him and they say, you'll get a princess and and you'll get a fat paycheck and and you'll have tax-exempt status for your family forever. And then, of course, what happens? His brother Eliab, the firstborn bitter brother, comes up and he looks at David and he says, hey, hey, David, where's those measly few little sheep you're taking care of? Who'd you leave them with? They're out there in the desert. And he mocks David and he insults him and he tries to distract him. And David says, I'm not going to ignore that. He says, he says, what did I do to you? I just asked a question. And he turns away from Eliab and he turns to the other guys. And when he sees that no one's going to take up the challenge, God emboldens his spirit and he puts it in him to face this giant. Verse 32, David draws back on Deuteronomy 20. And he says, let no man's heart fail because of this giant. See, David had not forgotten his God. David had not taken his eyes off of his God and put them on the size of this enemy. He says, I'll go and fight him. What does Saul say? He says, you're only a boy. How are you going to fight this giant? He's been fighting as long as you've been living. See, commentaries give us the the idea that uh, when when he calls David a boy, he's saying uh, he's probably somewhere under the age of 20. Like he would have been in our youth group. Adrian would have been preaching to this little shepherd boy to put that in perspective for you. And David looks back on his time in the pasture. He looks back on his time when the bear came and took away his sheep and the lion came and took away his sheep and he grabbed that dude by the beard and he struck it down as a boy because God had been preparing him. J.D. Greer says it like this, don't despise your pasture. God has put us sometimes in a pasture and we feel like, God, what am I doing here? How long am I going to have to stay here, God? What is your purpose for me being out here in this pasture? You've got me fenced in in this place, and you've got me here for some reason, God. Why are you doing this? J.D. Greer says, don't despise your pasture. And I don't know what your pasture is at 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years old, but you can rest assured this. If God has put you in a place where you feel like I'm corralled in and I don't understand what's going on right now, you can trust in this. God is preparing you and I in the pasture. See, God has to do a work in us before he can do a work through us. We are not prepared to face the enemy until God does something inside of us that we can't really put our finger on and we can't fully explain to everybody else. But God does it inside of us and he prepares us to face that enemy. And maybe the reason is that we sometimes struggle with the enemy. When the enemy comes, whatever your struggle is, just fill in the blank. When that thing comes after you and it threatens you and it calls you names, maybe one of the reasons that we're struggling sometimes is we're trying to skip over the preparation process. Maybe God wants us to slow down and reflect and to listen and pay attention. And maybe he's got something to teach us. And we've been missing God. See, at this point, we get to look through David's eyes. He says, you know what? That giant, he's just like these dirty old beasts I've been striking down in the field. He's not afraid of him. 
See, our struggles are about perspective. Our struggles are about perspective. When we look at what we're facing from a purely human perspective, it looks impossible. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 should be on the screen. It tells us this, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. There is no tape measure long enough to measure God's power. There is no scale we could set God's power on if it was such a thing and then would weigh. God would max it out. I played football with a boy uh, when I was in seventh grade. I was uh, 80 pounds and four feet eight, all right? I was tiny, smallest guy on any roster in Durham County, little bitty, all right? There's a boy on our team. I don't remember his last name, but his name was Von Zell. That's all I remember. And Von Zell was about three of me, four, doing the math, maybe four and a half. Von Zell stepped on the scale. And when he stepped on the scale, they kept bumping that 100-pound little block over and over and over. And that thing went to 300, and the little slide bar goes to 50. And when they got to 50, that scale's still up. And they said, we're just going to guess 365. Von Zell was a big boy. Von Zell was healthy, all right? Von Zell was four of me. Von Zell was four of me. I don't know what I'm telling you about Von Zell. God's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. That's it. Scale. Thank you. There's no scale that can measure God's power. There's no tape measure that we can stretch out and say, oh, God's power goes to this limit. So we bring our struggles sometimes and we forget this and we take our eyes off God and we look at it and we say, man, but my, my problem is this big. And we act like God really can't handle our problem. But he says, I can do more than you can ask or more than your little brain can even cook up. Verse 37, David tells him, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Psalm 18, David wrote it. He says, God rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Did David have his confidence in himself? Or was his confidence resting securely in God? And he knew his enemy was too strong. How many of you know you're weak tonight? Raise your hand. If you know you're weak, raise your hand. All of us, we all raise our hands because we all know in some area, if you're married, your spouse can raise their hand for you, all right? Because we all are weak at some point. David's confidence was in God. Verse 38, there's this funny little scene where Saul tries to give David his armor, all right? So I'm gonna illustrate this for you tonight. I got some help. If my help will come join me up on stage. My man Bryson's coming to help me. So I put in a little call to my friend uh, Carson Gowan, who himself is a large man, and uh, he coaches the football team at the high school. So I said, Carson, I said, I need some armor. I said, I need some armor, the biggest stuff you got. I need the biggest shoulder pads and the biggest helmet you got. All right, so he gave me this stuff here. So my, my man Bryson here, uh, he's only 11, um, but he's almost my height. He's probably about the size of David, all right, minus maybe a few pounds. And Saul takes his armor, and he puts his armor on David. Does that fit pretty good? A little loose? Okay, all right. All right, and then he takes his helmet and his sword, and he gives it to David. Stick that on there for me. All right. So, so this right here, Bryson's a good sport. This right here is probably what David looked like. He puts his helmet on. He puts his armor on. It's kind of hanging all over the place. It turns sideways on his head, you know, like, what do I do with this thing? And he says, no, I can't do it. I've got to take it off. You can wear that the rest of the night. <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. Come back, come back, come back. I'm just kidding. Appreciate your help. So David takes the stuff off, and he sets it to the side, and he says, I can't do it. 
He says, there's, there's no way possible. I haven't tested this stuff out. So he gets the weapons that he knows, and he, he heads out to the battlefield. <clears throat> Let me take it a step further. It's kind of a funny little incident, but it's not funny at all if you look at the thing from the perspective of Saul. Saul gave David the only thing he had. He didn't have the anointing of God. He didn't have the strength, the power, the emboldening of God. He gave him the only thing he had. Warren Wiersbe says this, when we're out of fellowship with God, we can only lead those around us into defeat. Moms and dads, when you don't walk with God, when you don't know him personally, when you don't abide in Christ, where are you going to lead your kids? King Saul had no confidence because God's anointing had left him and he knew it. And there's been times that you and there's been times that I have not been walking in fellowship with God and there's no way that we can lead our homes, lead our businesses, lead our multiply groups, lead our neighborhoods to Christ to follow the Lord. Let me take it a step further. David's weapons tell us a lot about his goal. Did David go to slay the giant? Sounds like a trick question. It's because it is. David did not go out to slay the giant. David went out to rescue his people. You see, he didn't take the weapons of warfare. The weapons of a warrior were such that they went to kill and to to destroy and bring destruction on someone. David took the weapons of a shepherd. Those things were meant to save. They were meant to rescue. And so it points us to this big idea that David wasn't going out to kill Goliath as much as he was. He was going out to rescue God's people. Sounds a lot like John 10.10. Jesus says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. See, David was going on a rescue mission. He wasn't going to bring destruction. Verse 41 through 47, we're almost to the end. David doesn't get wrapped up in petty squabbles with this giant. They stand there across the battlefield from each other, and Goliath just shouts at him, and he insults him. And does David return it back? No, your mama's a giant, man. You know, does he, like, shout back at him? No, he doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't call him a single name. He doesn't curse him. He says, my only concern is that all the earth would know that there is a God in Israel who saves, that you're not going to stand against my God. He said, whose battle is this? Whose name is at stake? It's not David's name. It's not Saul's name. It's not the army's name who's hunkered down in the foxholes. It's not your name. It's not my name. God's name is at stake. What did David say? The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. God's name is on the line. And he says, I will fight for you and I will give you the victory. But he's the one that has to do it. So David runs out, he meets him in the battlefield, he grabs up his sling, he takes his rock, he puts that rock inside that sling, and he goes to, to whirling around. He lets one side of that sling go, and that rock flies out, hits that giant right on the head. Giant falls down. Imagine being the shield bearer for just a minute. All right, you're the shield bearer, you're holding this arm, and all of a sudden you see a rock go flying over your head, and you turn and watch, and that thing hits Goliath, and he starts to stagger, and you're kind of dancing out of the way, right? And he goes to fall, and when he goes to fall, you duck out of the way, and he crashes, boom, and hits the ground like a tree, all right? You're in panic mode. You're in panic mode, just like the rest of the Philistine army. Their jaws hit the ground, and they go, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? He's the best we had, right? So what do they do? They turn tail and they run. Now, as a boy, I thought that was the end of the story. I mean, that's where we stopped it. You know, the rock hits him, he falls down, he dies. 
But that's not it. David runs over and David grabs Goliath's sword out of his sheath. He raises, I mean, imagine how big this thing is. You're almost Bryson's size. He raises this thing up and he hacks off Goliath's head with a sword. And he raises the head up in victory. What killed him? His own weapon. Goliath thought that weapon was going to bring him the victory. When Satan uh, 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 put it in the hearts of the Pharisees and those people to kill Jesus Christ, he had to have think, had to have thought to himself, this cross is my weapon. And what did Jesus do? When he went to that cross and his blood was shed and he died there on that cross, he took that cross and he dealt a fatal blow to Satan and he cut off his head. And it's because of the blood of Jesus that we are brought near and we have peace with God. And there was no peace for the people of Israel until the, the blood of that enemy was shed. See, when the blood was shed, they had peace. And when Jesus died on the cross and his blood was shed, guess what? We have peace. That's what this passage is about. We have to see it through God's eyes. We have to look at our struggles in the way that God looks at them. See, everybody else looked at it and said, man, he's so big, I don't know what I'm going to do. We're too afraid. David said, he's so big, I can't miss him. When you see things differently, it changes the game. When your struggle's so up close that you can't see what's behind it, you lose sight of everything else. And I want to encourage you guys tonight with this, and I'll close, because I know I've gone way too long. I want to encourage you guys with this tonight. I want to remind you of something. That the problem of 1 Samuel 17 is a theological problem. It's a theological issue. The enemy was assaulting God. He was dragging God's glory through the mud. It was God's glory and good name on the line, not Saul's, not the army's, not yours, not mine. And David was the only one who understood, I'm not a servant of Saul. I'm a servant of the Most High King. I'm not serving this, uh, this guy who is struggling and has the, the anointing of the Spirit lifted off him. I am serving God, the Spirit, the Father. I am serving Him, and I belong to Him. And so we can look at this passage tonight and understand this. Your battle, my battle, whatever it is, however you fill in the blank, wherever your confidence is struggling in the Lord tonight, your battle is not about you. David said the battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to God. But see, we live in a culture, even a Christian culture, that tells us this. If you have the right people, and you have the right plan, and you're figuring things out on your own, you can do it. You can do it. You're sufficient in yourself. Dig down deep. Find that strength. Gut check time. You've heard that? And all that translates over to our spiritual walk with God. See, we have to be humble enough to admit I belong in the armies of Israel. There's an enemy that came against me thousands and thousands of years ago, and he still taunts me, and he still haunts me, and he still insults me, and I can't face him, and I needed a champion, which incidentally doesn't mean undefeated. It means a man who stands in between two. Jesus is the champion. He stood in between you and the enemy. And when he died on that cross, what made him a champion is he stood in on your behalf and my behalf so that he could do battle with the enemy, a battle we couldn't fight. We got to learn to ask the right question. We got to learn to ask the right question. What does my struggle, what does my battle, 
What does my fear, what does my anxiety, what does my depression, what does my alcohol dependence, what is my divorce, what does my fill-in-the-blank mean for God's glory? Everybody else in the place was saying, what does this mean for my life? How are we going to get out of this hole? How are we going to defeat this giant? David said, no, it's not about us. It's not about our name. It's about him. So if we learn to see our struggles through the eyes of God, we're going to look at them the same way he does. And what does he say? He will not share his glory with another. He's a jealous God for his own glory and his own praise. And we've got to learn to understand our daily struggles, our little squabbles and our battles and our, and our fights with the enemy that way. What does what I'm going through mean for God and his glory? Your name's not on the line. My name's not on the line. Guess what? That relieves you of the pressure of having to prove yourself. God's name's on the line. Who made you? God. Who woke you up this morning? God. Who put it in your heart to come tonight? God. Who's seeing you through the struggle of your teenager rebelling? God. Who's kept your marriage together when there's been points you thought it was going to fall apart? God. Who's there in the middle of the night when you wake up and you say, God, I don't know how to face this addiction that I'm dealing with. He says, I'm right here. He says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And he says, I'll always be with you to the end of the age. That's the God of the Bible. That's the living God. And when you take your eyes off of him, let me tell you something. You look at the enemy and the enemy gets big and your heart grows small. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. We've got to ask the right question. What does this mean for God's glory? Let's pray.